Good afternoon. My name is David Bernstein. I'm founder of the recently formed Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. We are proud to jointly sponsor this live stream with the speech project of the Jewish Journal. The Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, or JILV as we like to call it, is dedicated to upholding the free expression of ideas inside and outside the Jewish world. We are concerned with the growth and imposition of critical social justice ideology that stifles discourse and too often silences critics. Today's live stream is our first in a series of forums on the free expression of ideas. On June 3rd at 2 p.m., we will have another such forum with prominent LGBT Jewish voices for free expression. Please join us for these forums and please reach out to us through the JILV website at jilv.org. We'd love to connect with you. We have a star-studded panel today, but first we have a very special guest live from Israel, a man who needs no introduction, Natan Sharansky. Perhaps more than any other Jewish leader of our time, uh, Natan has been a voice for Jews from the former Soviet Union, a voice for Israel, and a voice for democratic principles. I should also note that Natan has been outspoken in his concern about the growth of ideologies that stifled democratic discourse. And Natan, we're really pleased that you're able to join us. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you, thank you for the initiative about the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. I was glad to to sign the letter of support, and I think it's natural that. Uh, those who came from the former Soviet Union will be among the first to understand the dangers of what's happening uh, today. You know, Vladimir Bukowski, the famous Soviet dissident, uh, uh, was telling me and then publicly a number of times when the communism fell, he said that we really need, what is needed is to have a trial over the communism. And you know, everybody was too busy uh, congratulating one another that finally the Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, and uh, the West was too, too busy also to dream about the new future. Who thought about the trial? But he was insisting that he, he said, understand the fact that there was a, a Nuremberg trial that really taught everybody that Nazism is a crime, and the, the moment there are signs of Nazism, everybody understands that's a crime. But people will forget at some moment what was communism about, and they will repeat these mistakes. And, of course, in these days, I think a lot about uh, Vladimir Bukowski's words. Uh, you know, I, some time ago, I published together with Troy an article uh, which, by the way, major newspapers didn't want to publish, and finally Newsweek published it. It was, the, we were writing about the first signs of communist ideology entering uh, American discourse. And we were very careful saying, of course, we don't compare, of course, the Soviet Union over the totalitarian regime, and America is uh, the bastion of freedom and human rights. But here are the first alarming signs that said, First of all, all this attempt to divide the world into oppressors and oppressed, and nothing in the middle. And oppressors are always wrong, right? Oppre wrong and oppressors, oppressors are always right. And that's, if you simply take from this critical race theory, the, 
blockchain replace the word race with the word class, you'll get exactly the Soviet ideology with all the world is oppressed and oppressed and proletarian is always right and capitalists are always wrong. The second thing is that there is less and less room for criticism. If critical uh, identity theory said that that is uh, that, that is uh, black, nobody can dare to say that that's maybe not exactly black. Maybe it's not. Uh, it's maybe it's something different. If it is said that Israel is apartheid, they was trying to participate in the debate in the university with students attending with the slogans. Israel is apartheid state, boycott Israel. And I'm trying to say to them, you know, you're too young. I see you're too young. You're young, nice, mainly Jewish boys and girls. You don't know what apartheid is. I was a friend of Nelson Mandela. I was an international observer of the first elections. I spent a lot of time in Soweto. Let me tell you what it is, and then we will compare. And the answer was, we didn't come here to talk to you. He came to demand boycott Israel apartheid state. So it's not for discussion. And we see it again and again how suddenly so many topics are not for discussion. Uh, like this cancel culture. And the third, maybe the most important, that more and more people are afraid to express publicly their political views. Double thing, that was typical way of life of Soviet citizens. Uh, we, we all knew that all these ideologies lies, we, but we knew that the truth can be said only in the family. Otherwise, it's too dangerous for your career and sometimes even for your survival. And, and of course, in order to cross this line of double thing, you have to become dissident. You have to be to uh, risk with your freedom. You have to be ready to spend many years in prison. What was happening with, uh, with us? And so many years after, to, fi to find out suddenly in America, the most free part of the world, in, uh, in Harvard Business School, that one woman is telling me that she wanted very much to sign a letter in support of Israel, but because she knew that two or three of her professors who are so important for her career will not like it, she's not doing it. That was a shock. But that was 20 years ago. Today, it's much broader phenomena. Today, the polls show, show that 62% uh, of Americans prefer not to express publicly their political views. That's something which reminds me the life in different regime. And while I was preparing my remarks today, I read one more letter in connection with the last developments in the Middle East and our uh, just now, we spent 70% of our population spent days and nights in shelters. 4,000 rockets fell at our cities. We had to fight. And here is one more letter of support of Palestinians, not of Hamas, the terrorist organization, but of Palestinian people. Gender studies departments in solidarity with Palestinian feminist collective. Two, two pages later, I will not read one phrase. I want to read it. From Angela Davis, we understand that justice is indivisible. We learn this lesson time and again from black, indigenous, Arab, and most crucially, Palestinian feminists who know that Palestine, Palestine is a feminist issue. Well, and then they explain why 
Israel should be canceled and Palestine should be given to Hamas, to terrorist organization. That's the way how they want to see the life of Palestinian women. So I'm not speaking about craziness of this, but the fact that without any hesitation, they're quoting Angela Davis and we from the former Soviet Union, we know from our young years, who was Angela Davis? That was not simply American communists uh, with criminal record. But you no, know, they were Italian communists, they were French communists who were trying to see communism with a human face. And they were saying, no, she was fully in support of everything what Brezhnev and Adropov did. For her, every dissident, every liberal voice in Soviet Union was the voice of American imperialism. And today, today, leading American scientists are not ashamed to put her as the symbol of defending of uh, that human rights are for everybody. And that's why we want to give the fate of Palestinian women to the hands of the awful terrorist fundamentalist uh, organization. And you know, and then there is a list of dozens, maybe even hundreds of uh, American universities or gender studies departments of all the American universities. And then I heard some stories about how these signatures were collected or not collected. And you know, and you don't know whether people who signed this letter, whether they really believe in this nonsense or they were afraid not to sign. You know, in the Soviet Union, the number of true believers was fewer and fewer and fewer with every year. They were less and less, it was for people difficult to, or, more difficult to believe in this official ideology. But so the, but the number of double thinkers was growing. And the challenge for KGB was to keep all of them in fear and to demonstrate their loyalty. And I don't know what's worse, if those who signed this letter really are true believers or they are double thinkers. And that's why we, those who are coming from the Soviet Union and remember this reality, that's why we have to be especially sensitive uh, uh, to these first signs, but very alarming signs, of totalitarian thinking and even totalitarian policy called social justice. It was like class struggle justice uh, entering America. And that's why, and who knows, maybe that is really the role of those hundreds of thousands of Jews who came from the Soviet Union to warn American society about this uh, science. Thank you. And I wish uh, your seminar very productive work and to the Institute, which just now started, David, all the success. Thank you, Notan. Thank you so much. Um, we really look forward for uh, you being part of this. Um, I'm now, going to introduce our moderator. Uh, it's Dr. Pamela Pereski. Uh, she is the chair of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and one of the nation's most eloquent defenders of the free expression of ideas. She's written extensively on the subject, including a recent essay in the journal Sapir called Critical Race Theory and the Hyper White Jew. 
I highly recommend it. And if you need to find it, you can find it at, uh, at the Superior Journal, but you can also find it at the JILV.org website. It's on there. Uh, Pamela, thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to also introduce the uh, speakers for today. Um, we're really grateful to have such a prominent panel. Um, we have Maxim Strayer, who is an author and uh, a professor at Boston College. Uh, we have Kathy Young, a journalist and author at Arc Digital and other publications. Um, um, Oleg Ivanov, who I know from the Jewish Journal, but is uh, is an academic as well and in comparative literature. Um, and Isabella Tabaroski, who's at the uh, uh, scholar at the Wilson Center, has also written extensively about her own experience and 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 social justice ideology. So we'll be looking forward to hearing from all of them. Um, thank you so much. Pamela, go ahead and take it away. Well, first of all, this is such a great opportunity and it's great to see all of you on the screen. I wish we could be in person. Um, I, I thought I would just start off by asking all of you and uh, maybe Isabella, you can go first since uh, you just wrote this great piece in Aereo um, about your experience uh, from the former Soviet Union and how it relates to um, to what you're seeing now. I'd love to know um, what about your experience, and you can all uh, answer this after uh, Isabella too, what about your experience leads you to support the free expression of ideas and what are you seeing are the parallels between what you experienced in the former Soviet Union and what you're seeing now? Well, how much time do I have to answer this question? <laughs> I I could take up the whole panel just talking about this. I won't, of course. But um, so, look, I lived in the Soviet Union for 19 years. Uh, we um, emigrated in 1989. So I got the full kind of the full, uh, you know, Soviet education, um, school, and then uh, and then a couple of years of college. And I'm, you know, I call myself the last, uh, the member, a member of the last Soviet generation. I came of age in Perestroika. And I saw, I lived through the time when censorship began to lift. And this is what I wrote about in my article. And it is such an incredible feeling when you suddenly are able to read what you couldn't read before. You could suddenly listen to music you couldn't listen to before. Um, it, it felt like the whole world was opening up. And I still remember that it was completely exhilarating. Um, I actually lived in Moscow at the time um, I was going to, I started school, college there. And suddenly there were shows in theaters that you couldn't see before. Now you could see them. And, and what I also realized, um, you know, more looking back is, first of all, how much, so from the benefit of my American education, 30 years of living in America, first of all, how much had been excised from our lives and how negatively uh, it impacted us, you know, when they cut out information, when you can't read reports about what's happening in the world, uh, you can't really deal with reality. You can't assess reality the right way or, or kind of adequately to make good decisions. Um, and it confuses you and it blindsides you. And so what I see today, when we see books unpublished, authors canceled, uh, coverage, press coverage manipulated so that it fits a particular narrative, it reminds me of those years. And I honestly ask myself, what, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to create um, a situation where people are actually ignorant? Are we not afraid that people 
will be blindsided when because reality doesn't stop. Reality continues whether you cover it or not. So that's that's kind of very briefly. I, I'll probably stop here and let others answer. Um, maybe Oleg, um, what what is it that you're seeing that that reminds you of what you left and um, and you know why are you so passionate about freedom of speech? Sure. Well, uh, as the junior member of this panel, I think I have a slightly different perspective on these things. I was a child when I came to this country, also in 1989, like Isabella. And I think something that I noticed in my own family growing up is that, you know, in the Soviet Union, Jewish life, Jewish culture, Jewish history, these were all things that were fr frowned upon, that were forbidden. These are things you could not talk about in public. These were things that were not written about in the state-sponsored media uh, you know, there were no uh, there were no books being published by the state-run publishing houses about sort of the pride of Jewish culture and history. And of course, uh, the only way to talk about Israel was as a Zionist colonialist occupying force in league with American imperialists who were only there to keep down the Arab world. So, I think something the the way that really affected me is that. In my own family, I saw how we had to relearn these things. We had to relearn our history, who we were, where we came from. So when that kind of stifling censorship happens at this statewide, omnipresent level, what ends up happening is that who you are becomes suppressed. And you, lo you lose who, who you are. And it's important who gets to define your reality. Because if you're not able to, then someone else will. And I think that's something we're seeing more and more in these, in, in the media, in academia, in other social and uh, professional spaces, is this sense that Jews are not the ones who are able to define what Judaism is, what anti-Semitism is. In fact, it's anti-Semites hiding under the thin veneer of anti-Zionism who are defining these things for us. That's so well put. That's that's uh, that's actually uh, chilling. Um, Kathy, talk a little bit about what you're seeing and and your um, defense of freedom of speech. Oh, you're muted. Uh, I think actually. Hey, here we go. There. Uh, here we go. Can you hear me now? Okay, yes. great. Yeah, so my, um, uh, I guess in some ways my experience is uh, sort of similar to Isabella's in that I came here as a teenager. Uh, I was 16 when I left um, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, except that it was 10 years earlier, so that, uh, you know, uh, at the time if somebody had told me that things would start changing the way they did, you know, in 10 years, I would have said you know you know just you know that's not going to happen it just seemed completely impossible uh so you know i grew up uh in an environment where you know my family um my parents were very much sort of closet dissidents like many other uh, Soviet Jews, and well, not just Jews. I mean, a lot of people, as Natan was saying, were sort of quietly uh, dissenting, but publicly, you know, uh, mouthing the party line, or at least not contradicting it. And in my case, I remember very well, you know, my parents um, uh, started, uh, when I started
sheltered going to school. And I, I grew up very sheltered, by the way, because I never went to kindergarten. So I was never really exposed to like Soviet propaganda at the age of three or four, as many other kids were. When I started going to school and, you know, coming back and saying things like, oh, you know, we live in the best country in the world because, you know, in our country, the government takes care of the people and so on. And, you know, that my parents kind of started you know, carefully telling me what's what, and that I remember very well, you know, my mother reminding me that I should never, ever say anything at school about what we're talking about at home, because otherwise my parents were going to be in huge trouble. So, you know, I certainly had that experience. And uh, um, as I got older, um, I remember that one of the things that was really uh, uh, kind of excruciating in a way was that it's not just that I couldn't say what I believed, it's that I constantly had to say things I didn't believe and like pretend to uh, believe in things that I knew were wrong because, you know, by then as a teenager, I was listening to, you know, foreign radio broadcasts and my parents had Samus Dodd books at home. So, you know, like when I had to write an essay about, uh, you know, what a wonderful humanist Lenin was and how, you know, Lenin was really like the greatest and, you know, most wonderful and wisest of men. I mean, I knew that that was not the case at all. And yet there was, I mean, there was just no way to opt out of it. I mean, you really couldn't say, well, I'm not going to write this essay because I don't really feel this way. Uh, so, you know, one of the things, and, you know, I, I do want to say, you know, I don't, want to over-dramatize the situation. You know, no one in the U.S. is, uh, you know, on the brink of being hauled off to the gulag. So, you know, and we obviously have, you know, many avenues of um, information and expression that didn't exist in the Soviet Union, uh, certainly. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the parallels that I see, you know, beyond, I mean, certainly there are, in, in many, many societies, there are pressures to conform on, on certain issues. I mean, that's really not unique to either the Soviet Union or uh, the United States today. Uh, where I do see disturbing parallels is precisely that there is the expectation that not only uh, are you not supposed to say certain things, but you're supposed to say certain things, whether you believe them or not. Um, I mean, one of the things that was just kind of surreal to me uh, in this, uh, you know, racial reckoning that we have seen uh, in the past several months. And, you know, I, I do want to say, you know, this is not to say that obviously that there are no you know, serious racial issues to talk about. I mean, that's, uh, you know, the, the, that's an absolutely you know, important conversation. But what I found really mind boggling is that there were people or in some cases institutions uh, that were essentially ostracized, blacklisted, or, you know, otherwise uh, suffered severe repercussions uh, not for, you know, criticizing Black Lives Matter or even for failing to express solidarity with Black Lives Matter, but for expressing solidarity with Black Lives Matter in what some people considered to be an inadequate way, you know, and there were there there were literally like businesses that were shut down by a social media backlash because somebody felt that the statement that they issued in support of Black Lives Matter was, you know, too little, too late, 
or that, you know, somehow it was inadequate. And I mean, the thing that was really, um, I, I remember was just really uh, kind of grimly amusing was that um, there was a document going around about the, uh, you know, lack of proper support for Black Lives Matter in the theater world. And, uh, you know, the, there were theaters and, you know, theater companies that were being called out, you know, for not speaking out uh, and not making statements in support of Black Lives Matter and the racial justice protests. And then the next round of criticism was, oh, well, they're issuing these hastily slapped together statements that sound really insincere and fake. Really? Like, you've got to be kidding. Like, who would have thought Like when you're beating people over the head, telling them, you know, you've got to make the statement. Oh, well, you know, your statement sounds insincere and fake and hastily slept together. <laughs> that's that's a surprise. So, you know, it's just this atmosphere of um, this incredible pressure to really follow the party line. There's just really no other word for it mm -hmm. that I do find sort of eerily reminiscent. And I do have other things that I wanted to say about specific parallels, but I'll... Uh, you know, come back to that later. And definitely, uh, we will definitely come back turn to that. The, I, I definitely uh, want to hear about these parallels because I think it's really important. Um, how do you pronounce your name? Is it Maxime, Maxim? Maxime, and how do you pronounce my name? Maxime, I am going to pronounce it the way that you do. That's great. <laughs> yes, so I just want to say that it's a real privilege to share this digital podium with all of you, my colleagues. And also just to say that it was a special honor to be introduced by Natan Sharansky, who was one of my heroes when I was growing up at Refusenik in Moscow, and who still is one of my heroes. I also want to acknowledge that really, truly, I wouldn't be here speaking with you today if it hadn't been for my parents, Emilia and David Schreier, who were Refusenik activists and who raised me with uh, special, special respect for opposing points of view and also with a reverence for the freedom of self-expression. So my reflection really concerns the Refusenik legacy and how it relates to the present moment. Uh, I left the Soviet Union in 1987 at the age of 20. So when I was a teenage Refusenik in the late 1970s and early 80s, there was still about a million eight hundred thousand Jews living in the Soviet Union. And uh, I say this because it's important to remember that at the time, the identity of the vast majority of Soviet Jews was a product of both destiny, of course, and choice. And the choice was made for and forced upon Soviet Jews through a combination of nationalities policy, suppression of almost everything self-consciously, Jewish, what one might call stick and carrot assimilationism, and of course, state-sponsored anti-Semitism. But there were Jews, uh, Soviet Jews, zealots, fighters, nonconformists, who dared, who dared make their own choice in forging their Jewish identity and the identity of their children. Which is why I think the Refusenik experience, the experience of Soviet Jews who openly wanted nothing to do with the Soviet regime and thereby openly challenged the system to acknowledge its disintegration. This experience teaches us, continues to teach us so much about the price of freedom 
and the Jewish commitment to liberal values. Now, why do I say that specifically about the Jewish commitment to liberal values and its connection to the Refusenik experience? Of course, the term Refusenik in English is but an imperfect calc of the Russian atkaiznik, and yet it has gained both a translingual irony and a greater degree of political activism in translation. Because, of course, it was the Soviet system that refused to honor its constitution and its public commitment to human rights and liberties. So if I could lean for a moment on a Dostoevskian inflection, refuseniks only refused the ticket to Soviet paradise. And I think this is something for us to reflect on today in this challenging political moment, uh, how to refuse the ticket to various political paradises that are being falsely promised. Uh, the refuseniks refused the ticket to Soviet paradise, that paradise of silent, stifled, and strangled voices. And in fighting for their right to emigrate, and in living out some less fully than others, uh, Israel's commitment to gather all the Jews, Soviet refuseniks also showed their fellow countrymen that they were defending their inalienable rights, the very rights that the liberal imagination holds central to its vision of humanity. And so I want to conclude by saying that uh, really something that uh, all of you fellow panelists have touched on, the idea that in defiance of Soviet doublespeak, Refusnik spoke plainly and openly that they wanted nothing to do with that totalitarian system and that totalitarian country. They did not want to ameliorate it as the dissidents aspired or to bring it down, but to disavow it. And this Refusnik legacy with its fighting spirit, and I also think with its open rejection of state-sponsored historical narratives, be they of Jewish-Soviet happiness, or, and this is a little bit more relevant to what we're talking about today, of the Marxist dialectic of history. Uh, this legacy now lives in the countries and communities where the texture of everyday life is unimaginable without Soviet Jews, ex-Soviet Jews, uh, of course, Israel and the United States first and foremost, but also to some degree, Germany and Canada, which is why I think it's incumbent upon former refuseniks and ex-Soviet Jews uh, to keep defending the liberal values against the onslaught, both coming from the right and the left. Uh, to remind you of the phrase Vladimir Nabokov, uh, an exile who was married to a Jewish woman and who really understood the danger of uh, uh, attacks against liberalism, coined common Nazism. I think this phrase should be on the minds of ex-Soviet Jews today as they educate the public. Thank you. Wow. Well, um, following up on that, um, which uh, what you said is so powerful, the price of freedom and, and what you were defending was inalienable rights. And I, can, I completely understand the, uh, the connection between leaving the, the Soviet Union and, and un having a deep understanding, maybe a deeper understanding than those of us who have grown up sort of taking for granted liberal values. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, I'm going to ask you to start, Maxime, um, we'll just go uh, in a, a different order, uh, because you you said um, Refuseniks refused the ticket to Soviet paradise, to the Soviet paradise of silence, stifled, and strangled voices. And that sounds very much 
like what we're seeing now. I'm it's afraid so. Utopian view, uh, but in a in a uh, it's a weird sort of apocalyptic utopian view that we're seeing. That if we burn everything down and start again with without uh, without reference to the past, which is so morally polluted that we we can't take anything from it. Uh, you know, not even Thomas Jefferson, for example, um, that that then we have some chance at some utopian future. But at the same time, we will always be in an oppressive, colonialist, patriarchal regime. What do you see as the the parallels between what you were describing and what you see now? Well, I personally am having a very difficult time in the present uh, political and ideological climate for reasons that uh, I think I mentioned. I experience a tremendous sense of uh, aloneness. I almost feel like it's that loneliness of a former refusenik in America because I think there is the sense of uh, the oxygen of freedom that's being pumped out of uh, our mainstream. And this is especially difficult, I think, for immigrants, especially from former totalitarian regimes who chose to come here, and some with uh, a lot of peril. And uh, now, basically, uh, I'm feeling as though this uh, sort of uh, perhaps uh, this Eldorado of hopes, uh, and I think Natan Sharansky touched on that earlier, is uh, beginning to uh, uh, disintegrate. Uh, so Pamela, I think the parallels are specifically to the sense of uh, the um, open exchange uh, of ideas in the free market of ideas that is being taken away. And I, this may not sit well with some of you, I think it's being taken away by forces uh, on the right and on the radical left simultaneously, which is why for me, this is such a difficult moment. Of course, in the Soviet Union, it was all under the pretense of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Marxist ideology, but that was the pretense. Of course, the Soviet political spectrum also had right-wingers and left-wingers, and uh, it had ultra-nationalists, uh, ultra-patriots, it had uh, uh, Soviet, uh, you know, uh, opportunists, all of them took advantage of that uh, one facade to their advantage, but all of them targeted uh, free-thinking individuals and liberals. Um, I'm going to ask Oleg next. Um, what are the parallels that you're seeing, and and um, you know what's the what's the moment that we're experiencing now that your experience uh, in the former Soviet Union can shed some light on? Well, I think something Maxine pointed out that. For for Soviets, you know, we have we know what it's like to be caught between the extreme right and the extreme left. My family is from Ukraine, uh, as of course people know. The Ukraine uh, first suffered the invasion of the Nazis, um, but this was just after the forced famine of the Stalin regime, Golodomor, and then after World War II, you had the anti-Semitic campaigns of the Stalin regime as well. So. Uh, Soviet Jews know what it's like to between caught, to be caught between the fascist eagle and the Soviet sickle, 
And I think that this is a comparable situation we find ourselves in where it's precisely liberal, capital L, liberal values that are being attacked. It's this idea that, uh, that there is something wrong fundamentally with a pluralism of voices, right? And oftentimes this is couched in this kind of Soviet news speak, these phrases that mean the opposite of what they actually mean, phrases like true democracy, right? So of course, for people who don't know any better, true democracy, that sounds like the best kind of democracy. In reality, it means it's opposite. It means limiting democracy to a select, self-selected group of voices who have decided that they know what is best for others more, more than anyone else does, more than people do for themselves. And it's precisely this kind of false language of democracy that I think Soviet Jews are so attuned to, that our ears are so uh, familiar with. All of these words that mean they're opposite, all of these words that Soviet Jews heard every day on the news, in the workplace, from their political leaders, all of these words that they knew had no content, right? So this is a, this is a political language that is completely devoid of any reality on the ground and in people's lives. And we're seeing more and more of that sneak into, you know, again, in particular, I think it's a problem in academia and in the media, which does so much in shaping people's perception of reality. And, and again, it's this notion of who controls the language, who gets to define these words. And when you exclude a true pluralism of voices and disguise it with a much narrower set of voices that is that pretends to speak for a wider group of voices, I think for people who don't know any better, this can seem like the real thing when in fact it's its opposite. There's this great Russian phrase, which I'm going to alter the language of slightly. They're giving us feces and telling us that it tastes like candy. And I think that, there's, that there is unfortunately too much of this happening in our society today. And I think this is something that is all too familiar for the members of this panel. Yeah, Isabella, I'll ask you next. What are some of those words that are, that are I hate to use the, the term triggering, but, but that are bringing up for you the, um, the experience that are, that are sort of shocking you, that are, that are um, you know, confronting you? And, and what are the other ways in which you see the parallels in, in what we're seeing right now? Well, I would say that the the most triggering thing for me is is the behaviors. Um, for example, there is this feeling um, among activists that they actually um, have a right to sort of impose their point of view on you, and they can intrude on you, and they can demand that you say certain things or do certain things, and. In this regard, you know, what, what Natan Sharansky said at the beginning, this is very much something that I've been thinking about for a while, that we don't actually know how and why certain expressions are coaxed out of people because the pressures now are so heavy to, to, to toe the line that if somebody signs a, a collective letter, it's actually not, not a confirmation that they fully meant uh, that they agree with this letter. And we've seen examples in the previous year when a reporter went and looked into a certain petition and nobody wanted to, um, to comment on it uh, on the record. And that says something to me, because if you truly believe in something that you signed, 
you will confirm it. You, you will speak about it. You will explain why you made this choice. If you're refusing to comment on it, then that tells me that there were other reasons why you signed. Probably there was peer pressure. Maybe somebody came to you and you realized that you were weighing, well, what if I don't sign? And they think that I'm not quite with, you know, quite with the program and what will happen next time when I'm up for tenure. So I think that we have to take all of these letters with a grain of, with a grain of salt. And, and this, the, the, I have to say that the very, uh, the, the war that we have now, the war of collective letters, that in itself, and I myself have now signed two of these letters, including one for this uh, institute, because I realized that at this point, you know, I have to, this is the reality in which we live. For a long time, I, I felt like, well, I'm not signing any collective letters. It's just not, it's like if I have something to say, I'll say it for myself. But there is this, this war of collective letters where people, there's a certain kind of like safety in numbers in many ways, collectivism, and people people will often sign slanderous, truly slanderous letters without even inquiring who wrote them, what is the agenda of the person who put them out. Um, so, so those behaviors, I think, are more triggering for me than anything else, than perhaps any specific words or, or slogans. And of course, you're, you're talking about the campaign against Steven Pinker, uh, but there was a similar campaign, I think it was in 2017, um, to have a, uh, an article in the feminist journal Hypatia retracted, uh, a, an article by Rebecca Tuval, who had made a philosophical argument about the parallels between transgenderism and transracialism. Uh, it was very theoretical, um, but the, I think 500 um, scholars uh, denounced it. And some of them actually told her that they felt pressured to sign the letter and they apologized privately, but said they had to sign it publicly. But this is not a unique experience. Um, and so that must really uh, bring up some uh, some negative memories of, of what the environment was like. Um, Kathy, I know you had a lot of uh, examples that you uh, can sort of pull out of your hat right away. Oh, you're muted. Yeah, here we go. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think the, the spirit of uh, collective denunciation, uh, which exists, you know, not only in these open letters, but also in these Twitter campaigns uh, that we've seen, uh, that actually is definitely one of the things that brings up the strongest parallels for me to the uh, Soviet experience. Um, I mean, I, I, I've written about this a couple of times. Uh, there, there were some of these famous campaigns like when Boris Pasternak uh, published Dr. Zhivago abroad and uh, there was this uh, you know, campaign unleashed against him as uh, this anti-Soviet slander. And of course, at the time there were no social media, so there were these uh, Soviet newspapers and magazines that published these you know, pages upon pages of letters from working people, you know, letters from uh, the intelligentsia, letters from teachers, and of course, uh, none of them had actually read the book because it had not been published in the Soviet Union, and uh, and th th there were just these, you know, incredibly 
uh, insulting words like, you know, the, even a pig doesn't, you know, uh, uh, doesn't defecate or it eats, but, you know, Pasternak has. And, you know, and it's very obvious from this book that Pasternak not only hates the Soviet people, but hates all of humanity. And this is, of course, again, from people who had not read a single line of the actual book. And it was, uh, and it was really, this was uh, probably the most famous campaign of this kind, but they, they were always happening, these campaigns. And, uh, you know, the, 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 there's um, the other parallels. Uh, the, uh, I mean, one of the things that, uh, that was also kind of a regular feature of life in the Soviet Union is that the government would with great frequency launch campaigns against some aspect of personal behavior or personal hobby or practice that until recently had been considered perfectly okay. Like at one time, for instance, it was decided that karate was a subversive thing. Like the teaching of karate was banned and uh, the uh, some of the more prominent karate instructors were actually you know, sent to prison camps uh, because, again, it was decided that it was this, you know, un-Soviet thing. Uh, or, you know, at one point it was, uh, you know, the wearing of bell-bottom pants. And, you know, at one point it was uh, jazz. And, and periodically there were these campaigns, again, you know, against, again, you know, things that, uh, you know, that were fine, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. And now all of a sudden we're this uh, hostile thing that needed to be publicly denounced. And uh, again, it's, uh, the, 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 there are definitely, uh, definitely parallels that, that I can see. It's, uh, you know, other things like the, the insistence on interpreting all of art and entertainment through an exclusively political lens. I mean, I'm, uh, the, the, there were these, um, uh, there was this practice in Soviet editions of the classics, you know, like Shakespeare, Chekhov. Uh, there always had to be a foreword which would uh, sort of cast these classics in appropriately Marxist-Leninist terms and, you know, explain how Shakespeare actually, you know, presaged the struggle of the working people against, uh, you know, against capitalism and uh, how, you know, the... Um, all of these classic writers were in one way or another kind of forerunners of Marxism. And these these passages in the forewords were referred to in, uh, in the lingo of Soviet intelligentsia as locomotives because they were needed to like move the thing through because otherwise it wouldn't see the light of uh, the light of day. And, you know, I'm looking at reviews of, uh, you know, movie reviews, you know, book reviews, reviews of theater productions uh, these days. And, you know, and I see the locomotives like, you know, the, the, if you look at the uh, publicity around the recent production of My Fair Lady, for instance, there was a My Fair Lady revival on Broadway. And, you know, the, I don't think you can find a single review in the mainstream press that doesn't have these passages about how, oh, you know, actually, you know, Henry Higgins is a patriarchal oppressor, and, you know, we need to understand how, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, this play is very relevant in the age of Me Too. And, and, and so, so in other words, basically, what you're, what you're seeing is a critical lens is being applied in uh, evaluating art and, and literature now, the way that a Soviet lens had to be used in evaluating it uh, when you were growing up. It's uh, that, that's an interesting 
Right. Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it critical, by the way, because no, you know, I mean, critical, critical from the from the, the meaning critical theory. Right. Right. I mean, because critical, in in yeah. fact, it's really a very uncritical, you know, mouthing of platitudes. Right, and, right, uh, not from the standpoint of using critical theory. But right. Right. Yeah, but just yeah, I just wanted to right, clarify right. that. Yeah, well, so right. we're not talking about critical in the real sense. Yes, right. So, but uh, but Kathy, I, I want to um, actually ask you to start uh, with the my final question. We have a, about uh, we only have a few minutes left, but um, what do we do about it? What what are things that people who are watching and listening right now um, can let's say three things that people can do to make a difference in in um, increasing the openness of, of our uh, discourse and also maybe uh, make one of those things in particular about the discourse about Israel. Uh, right. Well, you know, I, I do think that one of the things that we can do, and this is where we really do have an advantage over people who lived in the in the Soviet Union, you know, back when I was growing up, uh, because, you know, at the time you really had to be, had to worry that if you uh, uh, speak up, not only could you lose your job, but you could very conceivably go to prison. Uh, so that's something where we don't have to be concerned about. And, you know, we, uh, I mean, I would really not like exaggerate the, the extent of the extent to which we're all sort of affected by council culture. We live in, in a very, thankfully, a very kind of diversity in the real sense of the word society where there are many, many different platforms today of employment. There are many different venues where you can, you know, make a living and, and you know, have a career, even if you do get kind of, you know, counseled from mainstream venues as a writer, for instance. Uh, so I think simply to speak up, I think, is is one of the things we can do because this, uh, you know, this sort of uh, pseudo-Soviet culture really thrives on conformity and, and silence. And, you know, you mentioned Rebecca Tovell. Uh, there was a uh, female philosopher, I forget her name, who wrote an article in support of her and who said that a lot of people privately approached her and said, yeah, you know, I completely agree with you, but I can't say it. And well, you know, say it, you know, what's the worst that can happen? They're not going to send you to Siberia or, you know, even to Alaska. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's, uh, that would be one of my recommendations. Uh, and yeah, I mean, in terms of Israel, certainly I think we're seeing a lot of um, uh, pressure right now for, um you know, conformity to this um, apartheid narrative that you mentioned before. Um, I think, uh, you know, again, the, the the remedy is simply to speak up. And, you know, we, we don't have time really to go into the parallels between Soviet anti-Zionism and uh, the discourse today. But, yeah, I, I definitely do think that it's uh, it's important. Great. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, Speaking up is has become, as you said, in in the Soviet Union, you could go to prison for speaking up. In our country, we don't have to worry about that. Uh, but people do have to take some risks. Um, Oleg, I'll I'll go to you next. Um, what are what are some of the what are three things that that uh, people who are listening, just regular people, can do to um, to encourage a, a more open 
spirit of discourse and, and to protect liberal values and make one of those things about the discourse around Israel. Sure. Well, I want to pick up on something Kathy mentioned, which was this idea of silence. And uh, there's a famous text that Elie Wiesel wrote about Soviet Jews, where he called them the Jews of silence. This was a text in the 60s. Now, what he meant by this, of course, was that Jews were not able to tell their own story in the Soviet Union. But he also meant that too often Jews in the West who had the ability to speak up were not speaking up for a variety of reasons. One of these reasons was that many Jews in the West were sympathetic to the underlying ideology of communism that underpinned the Soviet Union. So there was some hesitancy to speak out against that. And I think we see something very similar happening with Israel in the same kind of way, where I think we see people that fundamentally know better in terms of Israel. They know the situation. Uh, either because they've been there, they have family there, they know the situation on the ground. But again, it's this situation where there are competing loyalties, professional, social, that prevents them from doing this. Now, I think what Elie Wiesel and the dissident and the refusing movement showed is that you just have to keep speaking out against it because ultimately you will break through. Ultimately, there will be a critical mass. Now, what this takes is it's this idea that we can't wait for an Elie Wiesel to come along and speak for everyone. This is every single person in every forum they find themselves in. And no forum is too small for this. This might be your local community. This might be your reading group with your friends. This might be uh, professional, social, whatever it is. When Israel comes up, when people are, are saying these things that, by the way, a lot of these lies about Israel are taken straight from the Soviet handbook. I mean, this a lot of these ideas of the, so the about Israel being an apartheid state, about it being a colonialist occupier, the new Nazis. This is language that was created by propaganda departments in the Soviet Union for this for this purpose. And, and I think you know one thing that Soviet Jews can in particular help with this, or former Soviet Jews, is that we know this. We have seen, we saw that so much of this language, so many of these lies, which have just been passed on verbatim decade after decade, we know where they come from. We know that this was invented by a totalitarian regime for internal political purposes. And it's our job, those who know, those who can speak about these things, we need to do this. But, you know, again, no forum is too small. Anywhere where you can speak out Anywhere where you can tell the truth, you need to. And this is not just about Israel. This is, you know, again, sure, there will be consequences. Um, but I think what Soviet Jews know all too well is that we know the actual consequences of silence and the real long-term consequences of silence far, out, far uh, exceed the short-term consequences that people are going to experience from speaking out on these things. That is so well said. Uh, Maxime, I'll go to you next. Um, what, what are three things that, that anybody listening can do to, um, to really protect our, our um, liberal values and, and improve the uh, openness of discourse? One of those things ought to be something about Israel. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to share an anecdote and then just make one observation, not three, but two. The anecdote is, and I think it actually has to do with Israel, with freedom of speech, but also with uh, ex-Soviet Jews as uh, 
people with long memories who really must remember and must not unremember. So a few years ago, I was at a Jewish studies conference in China, in Hangzhou, which was a wonderful experience. And uh, there were various panels. Uh, I spoke about the disappearance of Jews uh, in Russia. And then there was a kind of uh, final panel, and it was chaired by an American Jew, uh, a bit on the left of the spectrum, and he said how happy he is that there's never been anti-Semitism in China, uh, obviously forgetting one obvious fact that there's a very small history of the presence of China. But of course, uh, the history of Shanghai ghetto, all of this is very important. And then some of the Chinese hosts chimed in saying, we've never had anti-Semitism. It will never happen here in China. And of course, being you know the contrarian that I am, I got up and I said, this is all wonderful, but surely you know how the tenets of Marxism are great sources for anti-Semitic thinking. Have you read Marx about Jews? Have you read Marxism about Jewish capitalist oppressors? There was dead silence in the room, dead silence. Uh, but I think people started nodding. And I said, surely every student here who grew up in China uh, was exposed to Marxism. So the first thing is simply to remember what you know and not to unremember. The second thing is, I think, to remain yourselves and stick to your principles. I want to say that uh, precisely because we ex-Soviet Jews experienced anti-Semitism and anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, hostile rhetoric so full well, we should remember and also not only think of it as relevant to the lives of ours, of ourselves, but to the lives of others. Look, to me, uh, the fact that there are activists of Black Lives uh, uh, Matter movement who are so anti-Israeli does not mean at all that I will ever stop fighting racism. I will never stop fighting racism as an ex-Soviet Jew because I know what it's what is at stake here. That's that is I I uh, in, in particular it's important to divorce the. Um, message, the anti-Israel message from anti-racist uh, ideas, real anti-racism, uh, not the, uh, the, the jargon and the, um, you know, the, the ideology, but actual be, actually being against racism has to be completely separated from this ideology that is against Israel. It's so often tied together uh, as if they are the same thing. Isabella, um, what are your three pieces of advice for anybody, uh, with one of them being about Israel, for how to protect our liberal values and increase the openness of discourse? So I think that the first thing we have to do is we have to learn to master our fear. We have to get to know it. We have to understand its source. We need to learn how it manifests itself. Because I had this moment um, last year when something happened and, and sort of some old trauma got triggered. And I realized that my, my symptoms of fear are very physical. Like I start to feel suffocated. I feel something in my belly. And then I had to bring in my you know, meditation training and breathe myself through it. But I think until you really notice, what is it that causes you to clamp down and be afraid? Um, you won't really know how to master it. So I think that you have to, to kind of get acquainted with your fear. What is it that particularly triggers it? And then find a way to work through it, I would say, um, in a physical way, but also by talking to yourself. I think at some point it becomes a conversation about, 
okay, what am I prepared to lose here? Like how far am I prepared to go? Do I realize that I might get fired if, I, if I'm too open with these opinions? I think especially, maybe actually especially hard in the academe because the more I look at it, the more I realize just how little viewpoint diverse, diversity it is and how much is at stake uh, for people. And so, uh, so figure out what is more important for you. Just, but just remembering that actually living the double speak that Natan talks about, Natan Sharansky, that is a very, very costly thing eventually. And eventually it turns you into a person who is different, into someone else. And you, and you realize it's again, something that I think Soviet Jews, um, those who lived under Soviet regime understand very well, the price of, of living an inauthentic life. Uh, number two, I would say become really well informed. Uh, don't take anything for granted. Question everything uh, and really become committed to it. I, I just I can't emphasize how crucial it is because especially over the last two weeks uh, with the the conflict, I mean the 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 amount of misinformation and disinformation uh, and outright manipulation that was flooding our information space was just so so. Huge. Uh, we all have to become really um, discerning media consumers. It's not an original point, but it you know we can't not uh, it, it bears stressing again and again. And specifically with regards to Israel, I mean, I would say again, it's be informed. And frankly, I would say just just go to Israel, just go visit, see it for yourself. Uh, because if you do, you will never again believe the lies that you hear. That's all of this advice is so useful. I mean, this is so great that there are, what, what you've all said put together is a, a fabulous sort of recipe uh, to uh, remember what you know, remember who you are, um, to uh, become informed, question everything, master our fear and speak up. This is, I mean, this is a recipe for, for toppling the house of cards um, that that is the the pref what we call in social science preference falsification the 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 uh, environment in which people will say things they don't believe because they fear the ramifications of not doing so of saying what they actually think if everybody followed these uh, pieces of wisdom that you've shared we would immediately be able to see how many people really don't like the environment of fear and censorship. And, and I think that um, to remember that the consequences of silence are worse than the consequences of speaking up is really important. Thank you all so much. I'm going to turn this over to David Bernstein. And David, thank you for letting me be involved in this. This was a really important and, and great conversation. I am so happy that I was able to be involved. Thanks so much, Pamela. And thanks to the great panel that we just had and heard from. Um, we at the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values want to help bring other Jews out of the woodwork so that they feel confident and feel empowered to speak about their authentic views around these issues. And we, we believe that if we do this, as uh, Oleg said, ultimately we will break through. Ultimately we will be able to start seeing change in our community and in the broader society. So thank you all for coming. Um, you will be able to see this on the JILV.org website and on the speech project of the Jewish Journal. Look out for the video and uh, please join us for the next one on June 3rd at 2 p.m. Eastern time with Jews, LGBT Jewish voices and the free expression of ideas. Have a good day.